Her beautiful book, The Fifth Woman, about a woman's journey through grief, has already won the Mary McCarthy Prize in short fiction. And just this week, it was named a Lambda Literary Award finalist. She is author and teacher, Nona Caspers. And today we'll be discussing, discussing her book, The Fifth Woman, and so much more. So don't go anywhere. Matthew Felix On Air starts now. Welcome to Matthew Felix On Air, people who create, people who make a difference, coming to you from WordSpace Studios in San Francisco, California. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Hope you had a great couple of weeks. Uh, thanks to a last-minute cancellation and the fact that I did not have a show scheduled last week, it's been three weeks since my last show, and it has been a very busy three weeks. First and foremost, I did my first of two live stage shows uh, based on my new book, Porcelain Travels, at the Marsh Theater as part of the Marsh Theater's Monday Night Marsh series here in San Francisco. Actually, we can almost see the theater through the window here. They're in the Mission District. And uh, it went pretty well. I was a little nervous. I hadn't done anything like that since high school. And I'd never done a 20-minute monologue you know, by myself. Uh, but you know, I didn't forget my lines. The audience was great. There were three other performers doing their own shows as part of the event. And uh, they did a great job as well. And most importantly, I had a lot of fun. So. I'm going to do it again. If you couldn't make it last Monday, I'm going to do it a week from tomorrow. On Monday the 25th will be the second performance. Doors open at 7 o'clock. The performances start at 7.30, and you can get tickets online at themarsh.org, or you can risk it and just buy them at the door. But, I mean, what if, you, you know, what if there are no tickets by the time you get there? So you should probably just buy them now. Lots more going on this week related to my book, Porcelain Travels. On Friday, I was notified that uh, Porcelain Travels is a Forward Indies Book of the Year Award finalist, specifically in the humor category. Needless to say, I was really, really excited about that. And uh, the winners will be announced in June. And actually, they were announced on Monday. And then I got a message Friday saying, just checking in to make sure you heard that you were nominated. And for some reason, I hadn't heard. So I heard five days later. But uh, anyway, that was great. And I'm really honored and excited to have been recognized that way. Like I said, now we've got three months, and then uh, the final or the actual winners will be announced in June. Friday was also the official publication date for Publishers Weekly's review of uh, Porcelain Travels, and obviously a huge honor to be reviewed in Publishers Weekly. I never had before. Now, other than the fact that they um, they said that in one of my so in one of my stories, I I pee into this urinal and it's not hooked up to the plumbing. And the whole premise of the story is that I don't know that or else, of course, I wouldn't do it. Well, in the review, they say I did it on purpose. So other than the fact that there's a slight misrepresentation of my character and that story, uh, the review is very favorable. And so I was happy. But I, I you know, I kind of I asked my editor and I asked a friend who's a publisher. I said, should I try to correct that error? Because it's not no, no fault with the editorial comments. It was just that big factual and they were like, don't touch it, just leave it alone. So like I said, happy letting that sleeping dog lie and just honored to have gotten that review. But I was a little surprised when I saw that they said I deliberately chose to pee in a urinal that I knew was not attached to plumbing when I did not do that. Otherwise, a great review, like I said. Uh, also on Friday, I found out that Porcelain Travels, and this was a big surprise, that Porcelain Travels was the subject of a thousand word uh, feature article on an Indian literary website um, called 
what's it called? The Curious Reader, .in. And it turns out that uh, a woman in Calcutta, India, Kolkata, however you say that now, found it in the library. And I didn't even know, of course, that Porcelain Travels was in a library in Calcutta, so that was great. But what's also really interesting was that um, the reason the article was so long, it was more than just a review, she talked about how the book made her reflect on sanitation issues. And, um, and so I loved that, and I was touched because it, it just made me think about how we don't, you know, we, we might have a, a certain intention or thoughts about what our book is going to do and how it's going to impact people or the world or, or whatever the, the project might be. And it was just a reminder of how these projects take on different lives and, and have a different impact than we can ever possibly anticipate. So I loved that what is primarily a humorous book had this, you know, had this, this additional impact. And, um, and the review was great. And the illustrations are great. So I'm going to try to point to this. You can see in this picture, I don't know, those of you who are watching, obviously, if you're listening on the podcast, you won't be able to see this. But there's even a little duck in that art. So I don't know if that's chance or if that's original artwork for the story, but I love that picture. And there's some other great pictures that they include in the article. So anyway, check that out. That is on thecuriousreader.in. Last thing before we start today's show, um, no show next week because of my second Marsh performance. I just, I do six to eight hours of post-production on this show and I just can't do that and then go do the stage show. So I'm not doing a podcast next Sunday, but the following week, on Sunday, March 31st, Natasha Ruck will be in the studio. And Natasha is a podcast producer, and she's also a stage performer who is also doing Monday Night Marsh. And so when I met her and found out that she was also doing Monday Night Marsh, and she's doing a show tomorrow. So I'm going to go see her show. She's going to come see my show on the 25th. And then on the 31st, we're going to talk about our experiences. We're going to talk about performing. And like I said, she's also a podcast producer, so I'm going to pick her brain about that since no doubt she knows more about this than I do since I'm just kind of continuing to feel my way through it. So that should be a lot of fun. And her show, by the way, tomorrow is called You're Good for Nothing, I'll Milk the Cow Myself. <laughs> so I'm not sure what that's about, uh, but I can't wait to check it out. Okay, and again, that's my show next, uh, our next show on Sunday, March 31st. Okay, after this quick message from my sponsor, Wordspace Studios, I will be back with Nona Caspers. A quick thanks to Wordspace Studios in San Francisco for sponsoring Matthew Felix on Air. Wordspace's mission is to bring together writers and thinkers of all ages and experiences. Wordspace will soon be offering creative writing workshops, a literary book club, and guided writing groups. And Wordspace is already offering writing residencies. They are submission-based, and they provide writers with room and board for up to one month. To find out more, you can email info at wordspacestudios.com. Yes. Okay, Nona Caspers migrated to San Francisco from rural Minnesota and now teaches creative writing at San Francisco State University. Uh, Nona has written three books and has co-edited a fourth. Her stories have appeared in numerous literary reviews, including Kenyon Review, Glimmer Train, Cimarron Review, Black Warrior, Ontario Review, and The Sun. Her story, Frontiers, was selected by Best American Short Stories as a Distinguished Story of 2016, and she has won a lot of awards. Her book, Heavier Than Air, was awarded the Grace Paley Prize in Short Fiction and listed as a New York Times Book Review Editor's Choice. Her work <coughs> excuse me, has been supported by a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship, a San Francisco Commission Cultural Equity Grant, a Barbara Deming Memorial Grant and Award, a Lambda Literary Award nomination, another one of which she just received this week, and the Joseph Henry uh, Jackson Literary Award. Last but far from least, her new book, The Fifth Woman, won the Mary McCarthy Prize in short fiction. And I, of course, just read the book in preparation for today. 
and it truly is exquisite it's exquisite i mean it's just it's just so moving and the language is just I, I, I can't even find the words. And so that's why I'm going to spend the next hour talking to her about the book. It's just a beautiful, beautiful book that I can't recommend highly enough. And it's very easy to see why she's being recognized so much for it. Uh, OK, with that, I will say welcome, Nona. Hi. Hi. I'm happy to be here. I'm so excited to have it. Congratulations yeah. to you, too. So we're both uh, Forward Indies Book of the Year Award yeah. finalists in different categories. It's Thank exciting. God. Because it would be really awkward if we were up in the same category and got really competitive. And I'd be saying, I found this fault in, mm -hmm. in The Fifth Woman. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's good, but, you know. I, you know, we'd have to <laughs> wrestle it we'd out. We'd have to it'd get right? very physical and very I, fast. I grew up, uh, I used to be a wrestling cheerleader. Oh, so seriously? I know about headlock. Okay, well, I was a wrestler until they made me wrestle. And I was a wrestler until I broke some guy's, um, what's that called? Not ankle, wrist. And then I had proven my masculinity and I didn't uh -huh. have to wrestle anymore. I, yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't have to prove my masculinity, but I, <laughs> I think I might have because yeah. they kicked me off the, um, they kicked me off the cheerleading squad because oh, really? I was so busy being excited about what formations the, the three other cheerleaders and I could make like triangles. But isn't and, that the job of a cheerleader? Well, no, we were, the, the coach said to me, um, you need to pay more attention to the wrestlers, oh. to the guys wrestling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, it didn't even dawn on me that we needed to do that. No, you were more interested in your creativity. It was very exciting. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, I'm glad that we were both sort of ejected in different ways from the wrestling yeah. world. Yeah. Okay. All right. So congrats again on the, the Lambda Literary Award nomination. And then... I don't think I, I didn't say this in my intro because I just found out before we went on that you too. Did I say this in the intro just now that you also got? No, I didn't say that you were just nominated for the Forward Indies. Yeah. Did I just say that? Mm hmm Okay. Without my notes. Mm hmm Did I say that? I don't think I said that. You didn't? No, we were talking about it Let's beforehand. Let's say it now. I'm going to say it now. No, I didn't say it. I'm looking back at my notes. I mentioned your other 57 awards, <laughs> but I didn't mention that you just got nominated because I only found out right before the show that you too are uh, nominated for a Forwards Indie Book of the Year Award. Yes. So congratulations. Thank you. And so I have, well, there's that camera number two. I have some champagne and she's got some sparkly water. And so we're celebrating our uh, Forwards. It's a, it's a lot. It's a mouthful. <laughs> and she's, she's making a mess. And that's why this is in a can and not in a bottle. <clears throat> I still have to prove my masculinity. That's right. We're still proving our masculinity. Although... This isn't Sorry. super masculine. Presto cuvee in a can. No. Um, it's definitely... It goes with my mic, though. Look at that. It's exciting, though. It goes with your shirt. It does. And I'm spilling it on the keyboard. That's less exciting. Okay. So congratulations on that. Um, uh, how does it feel, in all honesty, how does it feel to get that sort of recognition for the fifth woman? Both the Lammy Award recognition mm -hmm. and now the Forward Indies Book of the Year Award recognition. I felt so happy. I was so, so happy. And um, surprised, but, it, but also just, wow. Um, I felt really, really happy. And what I felt and what I felt most happy about was that people were so nice to me about it that my friends were j so happy for me uh -huh, and so uh -huh. that that is what made me feel even happy my family I have a great big 
working class Catholic family back in Minnesota. Um, They've been reading the book, which is not a book they normally would pick up and they love it. And so that, that is, I just remember my heart felt like it just felt big, really, really big. And I was like, Oh, and I would get a text from one of my nieces and then I'd get a text from a friend. And I felt really, really happy about both. That's, I think that's the right way to feel if there's there's a right way. Um, okay. So I want to say before we get too far, uh, that you are going to take questions at the end if anyone has questions. So you might already have questions for Nona. You might have questions that result from our conversation. You might have questions just about writing in general that you want to get her take on. So, um, please, you know, if you have the questions, get ready and mark them down as we're talking and we will address them at the end if anyone does. Okay. So let's go way back. Let's start at the beginning. Uh, why writing? How, when, why did you get into writing? Oh, I thought we were going to go much <laughs> further back no. than that. I'm yeah. like going, no, hmm. no, that's okay, an- another so episode. We'll do that. Maybe that's such a crooked story for me. Um, I didn't grow up with literature around. Um, I grew up reading romance novels and, um, I, in fact, I think I was addicted to romance novels for a while. Kills, addicted, no less. Kills the real, kills, <laughs> kills the real world uh, romance. Um, not really. But I, so I just stumbled around a lot, dropped out of college, did this, did that, did a lot of different jobs, lived out of a van, did tree planting, nurse's aid. I didn't even think about anything about writing until I went back to university and hung out with some other artists art artists who kept saying you know you're really creative and then I was supposed to go get a job after I graduated and instead I started writing in notebooks about six hours a day just writing 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 giving myself strange exercises and it was odd and I came here to see about getting an MSW, Master's in Social Work. This mm-hmm. I'm really. This is when I'm younger, and I'm thinking, oh, maybe I'll move there. I have friends who moved to, you know, San Francisco, and I. This would have been back in 1989, and I found myself standing outside for no reason. I'd never done this before. Standing outside the Creative Writing Department, which is where I now teach. It's weird, uh-huh, and uh-huh. Um, I went back and I just kept a job that would allow me to write while I took care of people and help people in uh, wheelchairs and wrote notebooks and just filled them up one after the other and slowly started finding things. Mm -hmm. So that wasn't until I was almost 30. That started when I was about maybe 26. And do you remember what prompted you to start writing in the notebooks? Because it sounds like it was just very organic. It was something that must have been... Um, bubbling around, knocking around in my unconscious, subconscious mm-hmm. little brain, uh-huh. you know, <laughs> little brain, You're that little brain, that little brain. Uh-huh. And, um, and then I eventually just started being pulled towards following it. I was looking for something to devote myself to. Mm-hmm. And I really, my mind, my brain, the way that my mind works, just it doesn't work. I'm not a scholar. I found that out when I was a women's studies major. Mm-hmm. Not a scholar. They kept saying box it in. And I couldn't. And then I found out that I wasn't good at physical labor. And then I found out I 
wasn't good at uh, other things. Uh-huh. And what what would pull me in was this almost like writing like a nun. I really was looking for something to devote myself to, mm-hmm. the way yep. nuns devote themselves to being a nun. Yeah. I don't know what that means exactly. And I was I I craved that. Yeah. And so the writing in notebooks gave my obsessive my internal interior monologue mind a place to go outlet and that and um but i had just started really reading literature and studying that in women's studies when i was like 26 27 and was trying to do that route which is more scholarly and epistemological that's a big one that's a big one um and i wasn't good at it but that's all right because look where i landed and then i i don't know how to explain it it's just I ended up here and I ended up getting an MFA. And, right. But the notebooks, was that was important. Okay. I think sometimes maybe people go to school too fast, too early. Because mm-hmm. I had a lot of time to really cultivate my subconscious, semi-conscious brain, that mm-hmm. relationship. Yep. I made a really kind of playful relationship with that. Um for years before I started shaping, right. I would find things. So and so when you when you decided to do the MFA, by that time you really did have this focus and this clarity of this is what I this is the path this is the thing to which I want to devote I had, my time and energy. I, I had the obsessive focus. Yeah. Yeah. So jump ahead a little bit then. So you get your MFA, mm-hmm. and how do you end up teaching? I had been teaching before I got my MFA in the artists in the schools in Minneapolis. Um, I was always in writers' workshops, and I I was always I just loved entering. I loved my imagination is my strongest muscle, mm-hmm. and um, I loved entering other people's work and talking about it. I would get excited about that, and I was always in writers' groups. And so I think I just grabbed, you know, I I gravitated towards that. And when I was a student, I just loved talking about other people's work, and I loved talking about the texts we were looking at. And it was all new. It was all just so, it was awakening to me. Mm -hmm. I I didn't come with educated parents. Mm -hmm. I didn't come with those expectations. I didn't come with literature I discovered these things as a young adult and was just blown away I'm like oh my god did you know this existed (laughs) right um so yeah that was part of it and then I I I had a lot of anxiety about teaching but I got a job as a graduate teaching associate in the program they they hire people to do beginning level courses and mm-hmm. I worked nonstop on one course. Uh-huh. I was very anxious and insecure about it. And that that's I just worked very, very hard and got lucky. Truly. Luck has a lot to do with m- more than maybe people I luck has a lot to do with my even being here, sitting in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Tell me just a little bit about that. Something tells me there's a whole show there, but tell me a little there's bit about that. There's a whole that, show that's, about that's, luck. That's, yeah. So there's nothing. I was, I was, you know, born in working class Minnesota, rural, right? And I, I was lucky enough to have a, a mother who was um, 
this sounds strange, but pulled out of school in the eighth grade. And so she very much wanted us to do school. Mm-hmm. So I'm the first high school educated girl. Nice. Um, not in my family, my older sister. And then she went on to college and led the way in scholarships and Pell Grants. And I was lucky enough to be born um, in Minnesota, privileged white, um, privileged, good-looking family, quote, unquote. And, you know, you should see my brothers. And, um, <laughs> you can show me pictures later. And... Um, Lucky enough to be in Minnesota where there's really great um, education, especially Mm -hmm. back then, and Mm -hmm. a lot of lucky enough to be born before Reagan was president. Mm. There were a lot of Pell Grants for working class kids. Mm. We got the first four people in my family got everything, tuition, paid for, and then we knew how to work. We started working really young. Both my mother and father worked and my mother had eight children, so we knew about work. Work, work, work. Yeah, and yeah, and we knew how to work. We had a high valued it, valued education. My mother had her her beautiful heart and her shame really created inside of her this push. Like my children are gonna, my children are gonna get educated. Yeah, yeah. And we did. You did. All of us. Right. I love that. All eight. All eight. Okay. It got harder for the last four with. Reagan coming into office and they took away money for uh, working class and poor kids. Yep, yep, but still figured it out somehow. It's an interesting story. Okay, we've got more stories there. Okay, <laughs> so let's talk, let's talk about writing specifically mm-hmm. and process. And I know this All is right. a big open-ended question and I have some specific ones I'm going to follow it up with, but I'm just curious, you know, because you, 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 you are a teacher and you're a writer both, yeah. And so presumably you're teaching about process and then you're, mm-hmm. you're constantly developing your own and honing your own and learning more about your own. So just at a high level, what would you say about your process or how you teach process or any sort of angle you want to take on that? All right. I think that one of the, one of the things I like to talk about is that this, this place of experimentation, that it's all an experiment and mm-hmm. that well it is all an experiment it's all one big experiment or little experiment life writing everything yeah um and just that notion of everything can be an experiment and you can keep going with your writing by saying well i'm going to experiment by listening to that thought after the first draft even by following the letting the subconscious, befriending the subconscious first, Mm -hmm. having a practice, developing a practice, Mm -hmm. befriending the subconscious so that that can do work for you because it will do a lot of work for us. You know this. It will do a lot of work for us. Mm -hmm. There are things that we couldn't possibly come up with without some sort of other weird force going on behind our heads where we're not looking. And then, um, so developing the practice, befriending the subconscious, and then moving into curiosity and wonder, like what, what catches, whatever catches, what's catching. So if I'm giving myself an exercise, I just move towards it and Mm -hmm. I keep going. And if I find something, I find something. Yep. So that other part of it, it would be great generosity. So having, having the writing accompany me at all times as I'm walking through the world, um, and just living my life and, and then generosity in the writing practice. 
What does that mean, generosity? Generosity meaning I take what's given to me. I follow what's coming out onto the page. I follow the mood, I've, especially with, with all of my work. But with this book, I just have learned over years and years of developing and being in a practice to feel what's coming out on the page in terms of a mood or a color that I'm stepping into and a world that I'm stepping into and then I follow it. If I find something, fabulous. Mm -hmm. If I don't find something later on, fine. Right. I just keep going. I just move forward. Would you call some of this intuition? I would call most of my most of my early writing pra practice, what I do, yeah. would be intuition and trusting mixed, that I would say intuition but it's also intuition mixed with a lot of feeding my subconscious mm -hmm. um, literature and not just feeding it literature but feeding it literature in a like a writer I read as a writer and I teach this right that how do we read as a writer how do we become curious about the orchestration of this piece and looking closely at that and just absorbing not clinging to it but just um, absorbing and kind of making my own what is my own so years and years and years of absorbing craft yeah yeah for me craft I try to find hand. a balance between because I do this more even with with say if I'm watching something on Netflix I can't help but sit there and analyze the characters and the mm -hmm. narrative and how they're structuring things and if it's comedy how the comedy is set up but at the same time, I'm trying not to go too far. Like you said, I, I can't, I think you just said clinging to it or whatever, however you phrase that, because I also still want to enjoy it. Like I want to read The Fifth Woman, for example, and I want to enjoy it, even though I know I'm going to interview you. So I'm also trying to look at it from the perspective of a writer. Yeah. So I try to find some sort of middle ground because otherwise everything becomes an academic exercise. But at the same time, I'm so fascinated by each author or each whatever yeah. creative person's process and how they're putting things together and that I can't help from look at, but look at it through yeah. that lens. And yeah. I enjoy looking at it through yeah. that lens. So, um, okay. So a couple specific things I want to ask you about process. Um, I, I watched a couple of inter or not interviews. I watched a couple of uh, readings that you did and talks that you did online. Mm -hmm. Thank God for all of this stuff that's out there. So it makes it very easy to research before a show. Uh, but you did uh, last November, I think, a City College, uh, San Francisco City College talk. And I want to talk about coming out, but not coming out in an out of the closet sense, but a coming out in the sense of the creative process. So you said you just talked about your notebooks a second ago. And you said in this talk at City College, you said, I have a practice of myself exercises in writing in notebooks. Many of these pieces, and in this case, again, you were talking about the fifth woman. Many of these pieces came out in these came out in these notebooks. And then when you were talking about the fifth woman at a 2011, so much earlier on, Velro reading, which is the SF State Creative Writing Department reading series, you said it's coming out in these odd little pieces. And then another quote that I found is you said, and then the rural people came into it. So I'm bringing all those things up because to me, the way you talk about a lot of that is almost as if the... Uh, the pieces of the story and the characters in the story, again, they're almost coming to you almost as if they have their own agency, almost as if you're a conduit versus this omnipotent creator, right? Who's just deciding everything very consciously. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about that? Am I reading too much into that? Or is that, yeah, your thoughts on that? No, my experience is that, um, my experience is that if I, all of the stuff about befriending the subconscious developing practice and just moving, 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 um, 
is that forward, you know, letting go of whatever and then moving forward to the next thing if I don't find anything, is that I get, I've gotten to this place now and that, okay, I don't, I don't have any explanation for so many things. There's so much that's mystery and I love that. I don't want to be able to explain it. So I don't know. I don't know when I sat down and, and wrote about a shadow dog, for example, landing on the table. I didn't, I've never thought about a shadow dog ever. That was not an intellectual exercise. No, I, I'm, I, yes, I, that was not an intellectual (laughs) exercise. However, I have a dog, Edgar, a little dog, Edgar, and, um, I've had her for 17 years and she accompanied, she's accompanied me through many wild, um, painful and, uh, cool things, including the writing of, uh, the last three books. You dedicate the book to her and she's acknowledged in the acknowledgments as well. (laughs) So Edgar (laughs) is clearly important in this picture. But I wasn't even, I, I, I started thinking about Edgar more as it started coming forward, the piece, but, um, I don't know, where does a shadow dog come from? I, and, and, and where did, um, well, I know where some of these pieces come from now, but in the moment I felt like I was just following. They come and I follow. I'm Mm -hmm. like, okay, Mm -hmm. I find things. Yep. Right. And so there is a sort of passive is the wrong word, but there's a receptive part. I would call it. Yeah. William Stafford has this great thing. It's an essay I teach on structured receptivity. Mm. And so I've created a place that there's a structure to it, a writing practice. And then it, it, when things come forward, when they come from wherever they come from, um, I'm sitting there with a pen in my hand. Yep. And so I follow mm-hmm. and I still write in notebooks. Yeah. I find, and I'm guessing you'll agree with this. I find that let's say I get a flash of inspiration along these lines. Something mm-hmm. comes to me and I'm not expecting it. Maybe I'm not even writing. I'm mm-hmm. doing something else. If I stop and write it down mm-hmm. and then I get another one and mm-hmm. I stop and write that one down, then the inspiration, it's like the valve gets turned up and more comes through. If I'm too busy to stop and write it down and then I'm kind of too busy to stop and write down the second one, then the flow of inspiration stops. Do you find any correlation along those? Or you're maybe maybe you never stop because you're so into it. I mean, maybe no. you're better, more disciplined. No, actually, no. The answer would be no. But when I do sit down, when I sit down, I'm I'm not writing unless I'm writing. So okay, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just I'm not thinking about writing unless 24/7. I'm. No, unless I'm writing. And yeah. I used to have a very structured practice, but I haven't for years um, been as structured around it in terms of time or writing all the time. No, that's not me. But when I sit down and I'm, it used to be, and when I sit down and I'm writing and writing, oh, I want to mention a lot of this has to be tied into this fabulous writers group. Um, Barbara Tomash, a wonderful poet, her latest book is Pre and Pelletier. Um, she had a book called uh, the the oh dear, the letters oh dear. 
and I feel bad. Was this also just nominated? Because I, I saw these Anne three Pelletier names were just on and your... And Jesse Nissen. They also got they're four my words. Writers, when they're my, in my writer's group, okay. and every word is connected to them. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've been working with them for years and years and years. So we give each other exercises, and a lot of these come out of exercises, sitting down in a pressured space and following in these exercises. And that's when these pieces started coming out. Coming out. Okay, quick question. We just got a quick question that ordinarily I would wait until the end, but this is one that I'll probably forget. Uh, somebody just asked, what's the William Stafford essay called? Do you know off the top of your head? If you don't, no pressure. Um, I can't remember. We'll I'm find sorry. out afterwards. That's okay. It's Thank short, you for the question, Aaron. It's a short essay. I think it's called... I think it's called Why We Write. I think it's one of the Why We Write pieces. Okay. Something I like bet that. if you put it into the Google machine. The Google machine. William mm -hmm. Stafford <laughs> essay on writing. It'll come I up. bet you could find it. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. Let's talk quickly about, it's almost cliche, but it's also really relevant. And I liked a couple of things that you said about this in these interviews or these readings that you were doing. So someone asked you, it's about inspiration, right? And everyone asks, I get this question all the time, right? From people, usually from people who don't write, um, where do you get your inspiration? You know, where do you get the ideas, right? Um, you said some interesting things about that. So I'm going to just ask you general. And then if you say what I'm specifically thinking about, then we'll just go with that. If you don't, then I'll ask you about it. So what are your thoughts kind of on, on inspiration? Hmm. hmm. I don't wait for it. That's it. You said I don't. <laughs> that's exactly it. The quote that I have here <laughs> is I don't wait for inspiration, yeah. but I love that. So, yeah, so elaborate on that. That's exactly the quote that I had that I wanted um, to ask you about. Yeah, yeah, I don't wait for it. I give myself triggers. I just, again, sit down with the notebooks and just um, start going into things, especially with my writer's group. Again, we now meet via Google and um, follow it or move towards the writing. I have this thing where I think this is, I have a very generous writing practice. And so um, I'll if I'm, if I'm into it, refining things, I love revision, revision, revision. I love it. Uh -huh. So things can come out very drafty, drafty whole in a sense, what I would call whole. Um, and then I move towards it, but all I have to do to have a successful writing day, whatever successful, yeah. to, like all I have to do is turn my head towards the writing turn my head towards whatever piece I'm working on and I do much better when I'm inside of a project. Mm -hmm. Much, much better. Yeah, yeah, when I'm inside yeah. of a world and inside of a color and inside of a project, I, I thrive in my whole life in a way that I don't when I'm not. I, I feel like I'm in a void when I'm not inside a project. Um, so I turn my head towards it and even if I'm just reading something over and fiddling with it or playing with it, which is what I'm constantly doing or doing little experiments with it that don't, I'm like, Oh yeah, that, that doesn't work. Um, or that doesn't feel right all day long, whatever that means, four hours, three hours, whatever. doesn't matter to me anymore that that's it. That's it for me. That's the process. That's mm -hmm. what I do. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it, as long as I'm inhabiting it, moving towards it, turn my head towards it and inside of some color, I think of it as a color or a sound or, Okay, so that's a, that's a question that I had for a little bit later. But since you oh, just okay. brought it up, tell me about, you talk about inhabiting a space a lot. You talk about inhabiting a color. What does that mean to inhabit a color? Yeah. Um, I don't know if I can have, if I can language into it. Um, except for to say that when I'm, 
in certain pieces. When I was writing Heavier Than Air, when I was writing The Fifth Woman, I feel like I'm the closest I can come is that I'm stepping into both color and sound. There's a certain sound that the fifth woman makes. Um, and a, it, maybe it's a, it's a mood, it's color. I also pay a lot of attention to color in my writing, which I wasn't even aware of until another book, Little Book of Days, which has a lot of color in it. Um, so I just feel like I'm in a color. And when I step into that color, when I'm inside the color and the sound, then I know that that's a place I can revise from. I don't revise unless I'm inside the work. Mm -hmm. I don't revise from the outside. Or if I do, it often doesn't work. And so I undo it the next day or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Until you get back into the color. Until I get sound. back into the color. Yeah. Um, let's see. I'm trying to figure out where I want to go here. I'm, inspiration. I guess I, guess I am going to ask this. I was just debating whether I wanted to ask this or not. Because my thing is, or one of one of my thoughts about inspiration, I should say, is because you hear so many people who do try to go find inspiration. And I just wonder if you really have to find the inspiration, is it maybe that you don't have something to say at the moment and maybe just give yourself some space? And isn't the inspiration a little more organic? Or am I being, is that just the way I work and everybody works differently and some people should go out and try to find it? You know what I mean? I Yeah, I think there are texts everywhere and... I mean, I say I don't wait for it, but I, you know, I give myself exercises, I, I read, I study texts, I get inspired by teaching, um, I get inspired by dust laying on the table, but I, I, I don't I think cleaned that before you got here. Oh, no, I'm sorry if you see dust. Yeah. It's shiny in different areas. Yeah, it's, it's, it is. It's, it's definitely un, uneven. Uneven. Yeah. It's like a little collage. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm being inspired by that duck right now. Arnold is great. Hi, Arnold, Arnold and Edgar should meet. Oh, well. I don't know. Edgar might tear him apart. No. No. Edgar wouldn't be the least I mean, out of fun. bit interested in oh, Arnold. Oh, he wouldn't. Edgar Unless wouldn't care. Arnold had poop on him. Mm. Unless that duck was covered in poop, Arnold would not be interested. I mean, mm. Edgar would not be interested. Yeah. Pardon me. Pardon me. Yeah, I grew up in the country. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I, but it's not that I feel inspired. Like there's this notion about the rapture of the small. And I think I saw that in, in a New Yorker cartoon once, or maybe I'm making it up, but I don't think of it as inspiration for writing necessarily, but in my living, there are things that keep me alive day to day that yeah. I, that this in the senses like dust. I'm very moved by when I can see, you know, when the sunlight is coming through a window and all of a gonna, sudden the hidden world becomes visible. No, that's the example I was just going right? to use from the fifth woman. There's yeah. a lot of that, like the light coming in from the outside. Um, yes. Yeah. yeah. And so, then they're available to me because I pay attention to them. They catch me in the world, walking through the world. Then they're available to me. I've paid attention. And that's also a tax. So different, I think people have very different processes and very different ways of sparking their curiosity and yep. all of that. And um, so for me, a text is could be dust that I see and the light coming in through a window. That could be, for in a sense, a text that I'm reading and mm -hmm. paying attention to for a moment. I'm not thinking of it that way, but I'm 
I'm but you're paying attention. attention. I think to yeah. me, that's so much what it is. It's paying yeah. attention. It's being present. It's noticing that dust. Yeah. And, and experiencing s- the dust. Right. But I mean, it's, I think it's fabulous when people go out and I actually envy when people say, well, they go traveling somewhere f- to, to consciously feed themselves other parts of the world or other I just I love that yeah. I, I think I just I'm a very sm- I'm very myopic some people cross oceans in their novels and stories and I'm paying attention to sunlight coming in through the window saves a lot of money on travel well it saves a lot of money and <laughs> yes okay I have many more questions about just sort of writing in general but uh, we need to get to the fifth woman So that's what we're going to do. We're going to shift gears here and we're going to go to the fifth woman. And I just want to say that it's uh, published by, I don't know if I'm going to say that, Sarah Band. Sarah Band. Sarah Band. Mm -hmm. Okay. I didn't know about that E. And I just want to say that uh, Sarah Band, Sarah Band Books is a nonprofit literary press located in Louisville, Kentucky, founded in 1994 to champion poetry, short fiction, and essay. And they are committed to creating lasting editions that honor exceptional writing there at Sarah Band Books. And again, band with an E, books. Org, and I'll say that again at the end. But I just wanted to mention them because it sounds like they're a great organization. Um, so I just wanted to make sure I mentioned them. But at a high level, can you tell us what The Fifth Woman is about? And then we're going to get into some specifics. About? Well, I think the... Ev- so grief... Grief... Um, I experience, and I'm not, I know we do, because we've all experienced grief, um, as this opening, this place that opens up into, um, other worlds, that opens up into the rapture of the small, that opens up the imagination, um, and that evokes, this is what I was trying to find, the language for a place that I went to when I was younger, and the language for a place that was deeply and shimmered with pain, deeply painful, shimmered with pain, and a place that I could not have experienced without something cracking open and seeing the world differently and and having no choice but to see the world differently. Well, maybe I had a choice, but I paid paying attention to the trees, the sun, a shadow, a a, a world that then morphed that that morphed into um what people are calling magical realism or it tilts towards the surreal to me i understand that to me while writing it um it was realism and that's how i inhabited it i was writing realism i was writing realism i went across the bridge deer hunting mm-hmm. i went with the narrator so it's a finding the language and the imagery and the place for um, grief, but a, a an intense grief that that breaks 
that breaks it all up, breaks it all open. Mm-hmm. Um, so thank you for that. Okay. Um, and I'm really curious about what you just said with regards to, for you it was realism. It wasn't magical realism. You have to kind of call it that because that's what other people are calling it and that's how they feel that they need to interpret it. Um, but for you, that's not what it was. For you, it was essentially realism. And that's how I actually read it. And we're going to talk a little bit about a little bit more about that in a second. But I, I want to ask, um, you say on your website, it, it doesn't say this in the actual book, but on the website, you refer to the fifth woman and then it's on, as a, a novel in stories, right? And mm. of course, it's broken up into 23 stories. Um, so what does that mean, a novel in stories, first off? I wrote pieces that were in one consciousness, the consciousness of a young woman living in San Francisco in an apartment above an alley um, and walks around with a watchman's cap pulled over her hair so that nobody knows she's a young woman because she doesn't want anyone to know. She's a young woman. She's not really in the world. She's in her own world. She's on an island. So... I inhabited those pieces as they came forward. I shaped them. I started aiming my pen towards that color and that world. Um, My writer's group helped me a lot recognize. I was actually working on another project. I didn't think about what it was going to be. Mm -hmm. And I didn't think about what it was going to be until later. And I just saw them more as a collage or one of the brilliant woman, Barbara Tomash, in my writer's group said... Oh, it's like a song cycle. And I just thought, I don't know what this is. The press um, recognized it as a novel and called it a novel. And I'm like, oh, okay. All right. And then recently I, I spoke in Meili Chai's wonderful teacher and writer, Useful Phrases for Immigrants. She wrote a blurb for the book. Um, I talked in one of her classes and um, she said, well, this has everything that a traditional novel has. She just totally saw it as a, as a novel. Yeah. Um, so I didn't think about form in that way. Yeah. I thought about it thing by thing. I called them things. It's yep. one of those alley story things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, later I, I arranged it. It's mm-hmm. so I did have a consciousness about movement. Well, and that, that was one thing that, that struck me is, when I was sort of thinking about it afterwards and think about how it's a novel and stories and how the stories can sort of stand by themselves. It's, but I still felt like there was a progression and then I was trying Mm -hmm. to think, okay, well wait, why did I feel there was a progression? And then I started, you know, kind of pondering that. And then I found some ways that would sort of explain it in parts, why it was a progression. And then in other ways it just felt again, organic and just kind of don't overthink it. And it's just working. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, but anyway, let's, um, Speaking of the story, speaking of the chapters, you have agreed to read one of them. And this is one that's actually sort of a good example, I think, of how um, how they really are stories in the sense that this is almost sort of self-contained, even though, of course, it's related to what comes before and what comes after. But do you just want to set it up or just read it or whatever works for you? It's absolutely stunning piece. I'm going to read it. Okay. Of the Coast of Peru. The calcium in our bones comes from the core of a star. 
Michelle used to talk a lot about solar systems. She'd lay her books out on the floor and show me pictures. Stars that measured 10 times bigger than our sun, supernovas and the rubbery effect of black holes, theories about infinite compression, the birth of hydrogen, lithium, deuterium, and helium. One time she told me that if the Earth slipped out of its orbit, even for a nanosecond, the oceans would roil, and soon we'd be swimming in our apartments like clothed fish. Another time she explained about the galaxies beyond the Milky Way, the colors to be found there deeper than we could fathom, so deep, she said, that in looking at them, one would feel a lasting satisfaction. And she took my hand. She knew for certain that when we die, we become those colors, our own planetary nebulas burning red and green and orange. The best month of her life, she liked to say, was spent in a cave on the southern coast of Peru. Every day she walked the beach to the village and then walked back and cooked a fish over a fire. Sometimes she was so lonely she couldn't breathe unless she sat on a particular boulder near the shore. And yet she stayed until the loneliness became her porch from which she watched the horizon. At night, she sat and listened to the Pacific Ocean chant its leafy litany and the trees howl in the high winds. On her 24th birthday, she became solemn and told me that most of the universe was still cold, empty space. Someday, there will be no galaxies. Someday there will only be black holes becoming white holes, white light and infinite suns. And then we will start all over again, Michelle, with floors to sweep, cups to put away in the cupboard, dishes to wash, and dust floating down onto our new dust, our bones again filled with stars. I love that. <laughs> that is so beautiful. So beautiful. Thank you very much. And it also ties in to, so I didn't mention this yet in the show, but I saw you read at the Racket in last fall. And um, the piece you read then was sort of related to that in the sense that it was related to time in the, in the, in the sense that this one comes back and it's kind of coming full circle and we'll be doing the cups again. And, uh, but this was the narrator wakes up in the middle of the night, but to her, it feels like it's day. I don't remember the name of this chapter, but then she goes about her day, even though it's the middle mm -hmm. of the night and time mm -hmm. is warped. Right. And that's, um, and you said in your city college talk, you said, Sometimes it, which is grief, has this kind of luminous quality and things can happen in that place. Time, which is so wildly subjective anyway, becomes lopsided. And then on page 109, I, don't, I just wrote this quote. I didn't write the whole sentence for some reason. But you talk about the malleability of time, mm -hmm. however you say that. Mm -hmm. um, so most people probably think of time as linear. A lot mm -hmm. of us know that that's not necessarily the case. So can you just tell me a little bit more, some of your thoughts on time and how it relates mm. to this and just mm -hmm. sort of your mm -hmm. just general mm -hmm. thoughts? Um, you know, m my experience, and, and this has also been studied, but, um, and every, every, you know, we have measured time. We know this, right? right? And we, ne we do, we need that, right? We also have function, then, right? right? Day -day. Subjective time. Right. And that's a time that can, almost be a bubble within the, the linear measured time. 
And that's a place we can get lost in that beautiful subjective time place. Mm -hmm. Um, Not always so beautiful, but um, it depends on where you're going. But um, so in that subjective place, um, I think that there's a, a quality of absorption, a quality of we get pulled out of, I get pulled out of my, my um, narrow self. It's such a relief. And I actually become lost in something larger than myself, larger than my own obsessions, larger than the limits of my own imagination, larger than the limits of my own petty Emotions, large. <laughs> oh, and they can be petty. <laughs> I don't believe that. Oh. For a second. I so, don't believe that. So that luminous quality with time, time and place, of course, because they're they can't be separated. They're inextricable. But um, right, the sun creates time, so that we I forget that the Earth is actually moving. I mean, we know this, right? But it's really moving. And sometimes when I'm in a subjective time place. I, there's more of a sense of the earth tilting around, right? And the sun moving, but it's not necessarily at all measured, you know? Mm-hmm. Like in, in, in that story, it's waking up in the middle of the night and it's morning or waking up in the morning and it will be night because she's not in sync with the measured time of the world right then she's not because of her grief yeah because of her grief and this uh, this other place that she's inhabiting emotionally it takes her into this other psychology and this other physical visceral sensation that that i that i then languaged into in a in a way that was rep- that was languaging into the actual experience, the visceral experience, the psychological, spiritual experience. Languaging into, you've said that a few times. So I like that language, languaging into. Tell me just a little bit about that. When I'm living my life, I'm getting up and experiencing the sun going up and taking my little dog out to the park and the glistening hill. Um, And when I'm writing, then I call that the difference between experience, memory, and writing and crafting. Call that when I start languaging into something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's how I talk about it. I love that. I don't know why. There doesn't have to be a why. <laughs> Thank you for the insight into that. Okay, I do want to talk about something related, and I'm trying to be cognizant of the time here, but I have a few more questions. Actually, I have a lot more questions, but I have a few more questions I'm definitely going to make sure I ask. Uh, but one is about pacing. Because one of the things that struck me about this novel, and I'm not going to have, I'm not going to language into this very well, but I'm going to just kind of feel my way into this, is it all seems very measured and sort of almost gentle and... But you're doing a lot of talking about day-to-day stuff that, quite frankly, could be really boring, mm-hmm. right? But mm-hmm. it's not. And I have read other people who... No, but seriously, I've read other books, and I can think of one in particular that I read like six months ago that I just put down because I didn't want to hear about him making eggs. It, was, it wasn't... I, he lost me, right? He just completely lost me. Whereas <laughs> when Nichelle is rummaging through her clothes and you're talking about her fingers, for example, I'm mm. completely there. Mm. 
And so to me, that's part of the mastery of your writing and the beauty of your writing and why mm -hmm. I found it so compelling and engaging. And as does Stacey Derasmo in, in the beginning, in the mm -hmm. uh, foreword, mm -hmm. she comments, there is not a single sentence in these stories that is not as clear as water. And as mm -hmm. soon as I read that, I was like, that's it. Mm -hmm. uh, but neither is there a single sentence here that doesn't one way or another cut deep. So how do you... And you might not have the answer, but I'm just curious just what your response might be. How do you manage that tricky balance of talking about these things that are perhaps mundane or day to day, but still you're still infusing them with such meaning and and they just matter. And I don't even know. I guess I'm not even, again, articulating the question, but I, that just really struck me about this. So any thoughts on that? The emotional intensity of what I was looking at, what I was trying to get at, the weight of it inside my um, cells, the weight of the experience, the weight, the pressure inside of me to move into um, that experience, to, to just there are many times, several, many times when I thought, what am I doing following this stuff? Mm -hmm. What? <laughs> and I just kept doing it. Yeah. I just was like, okay, um, this is never going to find daylight. This is never going to be in the world. This is so weird. That was my message. This is like so weird. Sorry. As long as my mom's not listening, although okay. she, she often does, well, but I don't see her right now. Anyway. Um, never mind. Yeah. <laughs> so I... I emotional intensity and that I needed to I, I really needed to go there mm -hmm. I really needed to find that language and it's not as if during this time period my father was dying um also mm -hmm. um so I went hunting you know I go hunting I, not yes. I I say I all right the narrator. the narrator goes hunting and I went hunting with her I what I didn't go hunting with my father I didn't go deer hunting with my father mm. my brothers did but I knew about it a lot there were deer hanging in the garage there were dead animals everywhere and we ate them yep. fabulous right lucky it was lucky kid that way we yeah. had fabulous food Fresh. but um we used to say it's organic <laughs> um and so I I went hunting with him, and when I I called him up and asked him for some details, sure. and he and he said, "Well, she's got to find a fire road to get the deer out." Well, what if she can't find a fire road? <laughs> Here's what he said. Here's what he said because yeah. I couldn't have her find it. What if she can't find a fire road? Then how should would she get the deer out? Then he told me how to cut it up, right? Yeah. yeah. And then he said, "Well, she's not a very good hunter if she can't <laughs> find a fire road." <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't stop being disgusted with right, that because he's in that he's he, in it with you he's right there with you he didn't yeah. he didn't stop thinking jeez you're writing about someone who can't find a fire road and you call her a hunter what kind of hunter is that so i love that i needed i i so it's that it's mm -hmm. that that drove it all of my work is driven by this kind of emotional intensity okay I want to ask you, we, we touched on this, but like I, I think I said we were going to come back to this. So we're going to come back to this now, which is the magical realism, which, as you said, when you were writing it for you, it was just realism. And for me, that's how it reads. And one of my questions is, so just for our viewers and listeners, so the, her apartment fills with snow. The narrator's apartment mm -hmm. fills with snow. Mm -hmm. The apartment opens up to the sky. There's an imaginary man who's very important in world history. Uh, there's the shadow dog that you've already mentioned. Mm -hmm. uh, 
so I got well my first question was going to be but I guess you already answered this unless you have something to add my first answer was going to be how did magical realism make its way into your story but I think you've already said that you just let yourself go where you went and it just sort of happened it's that I think so I just allowed it in you know mm -hmm. I ask my students this question I am so lucky to get to teach teaching is is uh, another primary art form for me uh -huh. um, and I have amazing students at San Francisco State truly amazing um, in many ways so if we can l allow in what's waiting for us if I hadn't allowed that in because that's why I kept saying, this is so weird. Yeah. Where, where am I going? But I just allowed it in, and I thought, well, this is where I'm going. Didn't think of it as a book. Didn't think about getting it published. Didn't Really, I didn't until later, mm -hmm. um, and with a lot of help from my writer's group. So we can go anywhere if we inhabit it fully and we commit to it, mm -hmm. if, right? So I just went there. I don't know what to say about the magical realism. Right. I, it's not that I'm, people are right in saying that and saying it tilts towards surre surreality, it, whatever they want to say, it's all true. But that's from a reader's point of view. After the fact. Yeah, it's not from my own, the way I inhabit it. And when all of us are inhabiting our work, we all have intense emotions, we all have an intense imagination, we all have experiences that pull on us that create pressure inside of us wherever that comes from intellectual emotional both um and so i i just say if you can allow it in then see where it goes if it doesn't go anywhere well what have you lost you're practicing you're still practicing the muscle of the imagination and the pen hitting the page and language right you've lost nothing right and further you have very likely gained something. And something yes. along these lines is one of the things that I loved is that the imaginary man, who we will not name, no spoilers, um, but the protagonist comments after her interaction with the imaginary man, quote, I have not felt that kind of love since childhood. Now, the protagonist is, experienced this, is experiencing this exchange with this imaginary man in quote unquote real life. So again, there's this mix between what's real, what's not. And even though it's imaginary and she intellectually knows it's imaginary, but what she's feeling is no less powerful. And what she's feeling in reality is no less powerful, even though the man is imaginary. And so I just liked that sort of coming together there, right? Because it shows why, and this to me is sort of why what you're talking about with regards to your, from your perspective, the magical realism just happened and you just went with it and you didn't need to name it or contrive it or it just happened and you just went with it and this and it just worked because what we imagine can have just as real an impact in this reality right that, yeah. and so for me that 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 exchange with the imaginary man really crystallized that idea and thank you that's a beautiful way to, that's a beautiful way to put it yes all right thank you <laughs> i love that okay so I, cause I was going to ask you, and now I'm not going to, but you know, I was going to ask you, how did you transition in and out of the magical realism so flawlessly? Because it is so flawless. And that's, like I said, that's why when I was reading it, I really almost wasn't thinking of it in those terms. It really was realism. You kind of felt that way. And now, like I said, I think we've already covered that. Um, okay. I want to I just shout out a reminder that we're going to take questions shortly. And I have a couple of questions. Well, I have one question that I'm not going to ask yet. Thank you, Matthew. But I will ask that. Go Gators. What's Go Gators? Do you know what Go Gators is? Oh, 
Hi. Because he said that. He must go. Do you go to San Francisco <laughs> State University? Are you a student? He was, but uh, wait, uh, the Gators, Gators are. Oh, I didn't know the Gators were San Francisco State University. Yeah, oh, I didn't okay. either. Okay, this is a little embarrassing. <laughs> I didn't either for a long time. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? I really didn't. I just wasn't paying attention. I was like, go Gators. Uh, okay. I, uh, I thought of Florida. It's um, the alligator. I the alligator know. is a, is um, a mascot. Why? For the, I don't know what sport it is. At SF <sighs> State. Yes, and I'm the chair we don't of have the creative gators writing here. department. Well, we we don't have alligators here, so I don't That's know. That's why I, I, have I, no I thought idea. it was a Florida reference or something. I thought maybe you were both well, in Florida um, together or something. Okay, Matthew, you need to explain the gator. Why, well, it, if you know which, why the I don't remember the, the sports team it is. This is, yeah. I know, <laughs> but I do know gold and purple because it was also the colors. They were also the colors in my high school basketball team. Okay. But I don't know the sport that the Gators are. Okay. But Any insight you can shed, Matthew, if you're still online, Sorry. which I presumably is because he asked a question. Okay. But I also want to let you know, quick tangent, and then we'll get back to our, our chat. Um, we have sold a book while doing this talk. Erin Byrne has bought your book while we've been talking. She's been so taken by it. So just FYI. Thanks, Thank you, Erin. <laughs> Thank and, you, Aaron. Uh, Yes. Um, so you can't say this was not worthwhile. You've sold at least one book out of this interaction. God knows how many you're going to sell once it goes to the podcast. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, now, of course, I've lost my train of thought. So let me jump back in here. Okay, humor. Humor. I want to talk quickly about humor because... This is really serious insofar as, again, it's grief. Grief is sort of, it's built, the story is structured around grief, the woman dealing with grief, and yet there are a lot of funny moments. And I'm just going to, I'm going to cite just a couple of funny quotes, and there are many, and I could have cited many more. Okay, one of my first favorite ones was on page seven. So very early on, she's already going at it. She was a confident chewer. (laughs) (laughs) I loved that. I love that for a whole bunch of reasons. But one, you could see it. She's like, yeah. I guess I never thought about someone chewing confidently, but I can see it. And that's a hilarious observation. And that's, again, that's one of those sort of day-to-day, like really getting into the nitty-gritty. But in this case, it's really funny. Um, I should have been somebody's hamster. Okay, that's another good one. Uh, But then this one is sort of macabre and hilarious at the same Mm -hmm. time. Like maybe Mm -hmm. this one's not supposed to be funny, Mm -hmm. but to me it is. And I suspect to you it was too. But, quote, I liked hearing... (laughs) Okay, hold on. I liked hearing the details of other people. You're talking to your mom. This is about your conversations with your mom. I liked hearing the details of other people's lives. People wounded in hunting accidents. (laughs) That's not it. People wounded in hunting accidents or or run over by farm machinery (laughs) or their children run over. (laughs) It's terrible that we're laughing at this. Or their children run over or somehow damaged. By farm machinery. Okay, you and I clearly have similar dark senses and dry senses of humor, but I love that, and there's so much of that. So can you tell me, though, going, getting more back on track to our respectable literary conversation about kind of why you brought the humor in to a book that's focused around grief? And I think I already know the answer. Would you give it? I don't know. I mean, this is my, that's the, that's my sensibility. That's the, the kind of, humor that hits me um sometimes like i here's the thing this is so absurd this thing that we're doing and we all know this life yeah this yep. thing that we're doing yeah. yes this yeah. living thing <laughs> this living thing that yes. we're doing yes you no know, you know mo- you know we go we go we do this we do that we do this we do that and that's great 
And then once in a while, we just stand back and we look and it's like, good Lord, look at that. <laughs> look at that strange thing that person said. Look at that strange person I am. Look at this. Look at the way this little girl is petting her dog on the on the bench and talking about, I'll be so sad when you die, Buster, or whatever. And I'm laughing. (laughs) Life is, it's so absurd, right? Mm. That Italo Calvino story, The Flash, where everything suddenly becomes clearly absurd and what are Mm. we all participating in? And so I think I have that kind of meta view readily available. Mm. My father also had it readily available. Mm -hmm. And he would make these little comments we, you know, we'd be playing cards and mom would be like, no, I had 12 points on that last hand. She's a fabulous bridge player and card player. Uh-huh. And he'd say, well, Bert, if you feel that strongly about it, I'll give you the 12 points. And he'd <laughs> write it down. But we would all laugh yeah. because we knew that he was making some comment about whatever. Or yeah. Yeah. I don't know. That wasn't a very good example. But um that wasn't a good example, but he did it all the time. He made these dry comments that a lot of people wouldn't even laugh at, but the fan, we would, his children would laugh at them. Oh, no, but it goes back, that example goes back to what you just said a second ago, which is, it's not, and this is why I said when I said I, I already think I know the answer, this was going to be my answer for you, would have been that just like everything we're talking about with the magical realism or just your whole writing process, it's not... It's not strategic. It's not contrived. You're just going with it, and it just organically comes in. It's your sensibility. It's your background. It's that inspiration comes in. It's funny. It works there, and you just go with it. Yeah, and, and it's how thing. we survive, which it's is I think also survive. the other thing you're sort of maybe maybe hinting at is everything yeah. is so surreal. I couldn't survive here without humor. Right. No, I mean the humor is what gets me through the day. Yeah. Amen. Amen to that. Okay. Last question before we take questions is um, gender identity because the novel is about a queer woman. It's clear from the get-go. And yet, the only explicit reference I remember, and of course I could be wrong, um, other than, of course, the repeated references to the lover, is you do say on page 10, so again, very early on, quote, there is something that happens when you live in a nice apartment in a pleasant neighborhood in my city especially if you grew up queer in an inhospitable place. But the rest of the time, other than we know that it was this relationship that's being mourned betwe- between two women, yeah. it's, not, it's not like there's a scene where she's grappling with not, she, they're not married or they can't get married or she doesn't have the rights to visit her lover in the hospital. There's not that kind of stuff going on, right? right. So any thoughts about how the queer identity fits into the story? I think... I think that I am queer and it's almost like time and place. It's not really they're kind of inextricable from my imagination and my material of my life and that I have been in queer relationships with women my whole life and that those relationships were just, they were relationships. And then grief, we all experience grief. That's I it. Don't, we all experience grief. I mean, I do think that there's a way of seeing that, I, that I've that i gotten from being queer, and I think some of that 
is a surreal there's some surreality in that because when you're told when when you know this is a table okay this is a table we all agree this is a table but what if it's a duck <laughs> and I think you know we've, we've heard this before the sky is blue the sky is blue but then I looked up at some point and I'm like oh the sky is sometimes green and it's sometimes sort of a dark gray and black and sometimes it's you know or uh, you know we agree on a certain reality but the reality that I agreed on as though it was just floor was that I was going to grow up and either become a nun or um which would have been fine I suppose but I was not nun. <laughs> I was never nun material and my mother knew it yeah or that I was going to um fall in love and always fall in love came first and marry and have at least six to eight children and um and that's life too and then something else started happening some other creature started coming forward and some other vision and it really broke that was also a breaking open it's like a seeing underneath a world under a world like grief mm -hmm. and so it did it did give me a different way of looking at the world and then um so I think vision, I think it's, it's mm -hmm. just, it's just woven into who I am yes. and the vision and that's my material. So right, right. there it is. There it is. But do you notice that I'm not, I'd not, um, I have never, I think there's only one line of direct mention of sex. You know how difficult it is. There are people who write, so Mary Gateskill, Robert Gluck, Dodie Bellamy, um, two of them one of Dodie still teaches at SFSU and Robert Gluck used to and in a very different way than more much more you know experimental and raw and, and wild but I you know the people who write beautifully into sex Dorothy Allison my god mm. I mean you're just in it and on it and with it <laughs> um uh-huh and and it's but it's the depth under it i don't that isn't a, a material that i have access to mm -hmm. and doesn't come forward mm -hmm. except for i think in one sentence when she says sexual strangers we pretended we were sexual right. strangers right right mm -hmm. you're right the only other question I ha I mean, I have a million more questions, but time wise where I'm out of time and I do want to ask um, Matthew, like I said, has a question. And uh, if anyone else has a question, now is the time to send them in because I'm about to take questions. But the one other thing I wanted to mention, it's similar to what you were just saying about not really mentioning sex, except for that one time. You never I don't think you ever say San Francisco. Oh, the city. Yeah. You do, you refer to the city. It's I know the, the streets you're talking about. I live in the neighborhood where the, no, the novel takes place. Um, although I was thinking, I was envisioning the Tenderloin because I lived in a place like this apartment with the alley and all that. So in my mind, we were in the Tenderloin until you mentioned at some point the mission, I think. But anyway, so obviously being from San, living in San Francisco, it was all super familiar to me. But I thought it was interesting that you don't ever say San Francisco. Was mm -hmm. that, again? I think the feeling is... Um, that it, she is in, she is on her own island. Her apartment is her world. The street outside the apartment is her world. Um, and then going over the Golden Gate Bridge and the forest is her world. The fog. The city has enough shadow to it, just like the shadow of the dog. Um, her writing table is the world. So 
landing her in a particular place with a name doesn't matter just felt wrong because she's yeah. not inhabiting that specifically yeah yeah okay cool yeah. i get it okay so now is the time for questions okay so matthew says or asks how does completing this novel feel different than finishing little book of days I love that question. Um, how does it feel different? Good question, Matthew. Yeah. Um, so, I finished this novel, and it was set to be published um, two years ago. Mm. And then I um, I got ill, um, and I couldn't uh I was very out of service um it's only the last six months that I've been more in service and been able to leave my apartment and um live more in the world and um start writing again so um the edits came while I was ill and I got help and really had to pull forward my imagination and mind to go back in. And by the way, Saraband is an amazing press, truly amazing. Mm. I mean, this the editor who I thank and um, Kirsten Miller. I'm, there's several several Kirstens, and I'm going to get her name wrong. I'm sorry. Um, it was just amazing. And um, so the meaning for me after going through something like that. Um, the, the meaning of the book being in the world and having it have become a book and getting recognition, um, I think it just is the, a deep, deep feeling of, of powerful, um, hmm. I want to say gratitude and it's so overused, but that's what it is. Yeah. It's just like deep, deep feeling of, wow, aren't I lucky? I'm so lucky. Everything else is gravy. Mm. So, mm. so yeah. And so I'm happy that it's in the world. And, and so are we. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for writing it. Thank you for sharing it. Thanks for being here today to talk about it. I really appreciate it. And I want to mention a couple of things that you have going on, one of which is, because we're way over on time, not that it matters, but uh, but we do need to wrap up. This Thursday, March 20th, is that Thursday? Yes. What's today? That's Thursday, yes. right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, no, today's the 17th. Oh, when, With March 20th Wednesday? would be a Wednesday, yeah, I think, Wednesday. right? I think it's Wednesday. Okay, I caught myself there. Uh, at the Poetry Center at San Francisco State University, you are in conversation with R.O. Kwan. I am. What you an are? amazing, check out her book, The Incendiaries. Really? Okay. I mean that really. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay. All right. And check out that talk at, do you know what time that is off the top? 7 p.m. at the Poetry Center on the fifth floor of the Humanities Building at San Francisco State University, where I am lucky enough to teach and lucky enough to love it. <laughs> All right. I love that. Okay. And then later in the month, you, on the 25th, you'll be at the Association of Writers and Writing Programs Conference. Is there anything else you want to mention that's upcoming that people should know about? I mean, of course, everything is on your site, noahcaspers.com, but anything else you want to mention? Or are those the two most imminent 
things people should know about? Those are the events. Okay. Um, AWP and the Poetry Center. And I just want to thank you. Thank you. A full-hearted thank you to Matthew and to anyone who listened and to um, Sarah Band Press and my writers group and to that duck. <laughs> and to That's that Arnold. duck thank on, you, Arnold. on Arnold. Arnold. I wish Edgar could have been here as well. It would have been great, but Arnold did a good job holding, holding, holding the fort down, keeping us in line. He's a great guy. Thank you very much for being here. This yeah. was great. All right. Well, we are out of time. Like I said, NoahCaspers.com. Check that out. Nona. Nona. Sorry. That's yeah. Right. Noah. I, no. What I did like, I say? I, I don't even know what I said. For just a moment, I'm like, oh, I get to be Noah. Yeah. Noah Caspers, like brother to Nona Caspers. Mm-hmm. Um, Nona Caspers. I don't. I think that's the only time I said Noah, right? It's the only time. Okay, all right, great. Thanks for catching me. NonaCaspers.com and then Sarah Band with an E, books.org is the publisher. Like I said, that's all for today. Thanks again to my guest, author Nona Caspers. Thanks to WordSpace Studios for hosting me. They, again, are at WordSpaceStudios.com. Uh, no show next week, like I said, but the week after, 331, March 31st, stage performer, fellow Monday Night Martian and podcast producer Natasha Ruck will be here. And of course, like I said, my Marsh show, my next Marsh show is on Monday, March 25th. So please, if you're in the Bay Area, come check that out. Uh, it's a lot of fun. And uh, as always, thank you so much for watching and listening. If you like the show, if you would please share on social media and subscribe, rate, and review wherever you happen to listen or watch. It makes a huge difference, and I would really appreciate it. For more about me, my website is matthewfelix.com, and links to my social media, books, including Porcelain Travels, other podcasts, and all the rest can be found there. If you have any comments, uh, ideas for the show, or just want to say hello, I would love to hear from you at felixonair at matthewfelix.com. Thanks again for watching and listening and have a great week.